Have you subscribed to the OTB Football Podcast? Maybe I believe in the team more than anyone else. I do believe that we have what it takes to finish top of the group, and that's what my ambitions are. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. We've a busy show, lots to discuss. Sarah O'Donovan is an All-Ireland Camogie winner with Cork and represented Dublin as well. She is with us, as is Gavin Kumiski of the Irish Times. I'll go through the front pages just to get the ball rolling. So the Sunday Independent, they have a picture from the Connacht game last night, the sports ground at halftime. A picture of Ashleen Murphy where there was a tribute paid to her during that game. She was out for a run when it happened. She was working on her fitness for the Camogie season. Tommy Conlon, uh, page seven inside which we'll come to and then beneath that uh, less important I'm sure you'll agree Ragged United suffer at hands of Coutinho this was the uh, game uh, last night where Manchester United threw away a two goal lead at Villa Park back page of the Sunday World it's a picture of Mo Salah who's over at the African Cup of Nations at the moment Mo Money or Mo Problems this is an interesting piece in that Ken Lawrence is saying that one of the issues uh, Liverpool owners have with giving Mo Salah a huge jump in salary is that apparently three other players have clauses in their contract guaranteeing them a parity with the highest paid player at the club. These are always expensive clauses to have in your contract. So Virgil van Dijk, and then I was surprised really, van Dijk I could, I could see, Andy Robertson and Trent Alexander-Arnold, as brilliant as they are, the two fullbacks will be uh, amongst top paid players at the club. If so, if Mo Salah gets the deal apparently, that's the back page of the Sunday World. Uh, Sunday Mirror so we have Manchester City celebrating their win against Chelsea De Bruyne after his brilliant goal that's the title in the bag is the headline and then Ralph Rage this is Ralph Radnick not happy at uh, the lack of backing he's getting in the transfer market apparently Uh, Sunday Times then we have Kevin De Bruyne wheeling away in celebration yesterday in the lunchtime sunshine in Manchester League of their own is the headline De Bruyne sends City 13 points clear as Tuchel hangs Lukaku out to dry. I wasn't impressed with his performance. Interesting story beside that, Eriksen, Christian Eriksen, set to return to the English top flight. So Christian Eriksen wants to get back at it, thankfully, and he's 29 years of age now. He's obviously a free agent, and he wants to play in the World Cup in Qatar in November. Money, no great motivation for him. He was on 200 grand a week at Inter, so he's uh, willing and able to take a very reasonable deal, and there is interest interest uh, around the Premier League as you might imagine uh, beneath that Spurs anger over late call to postpone Derby clash we were meant to have Arsenal against Spurs today on the show called off Gary Neville amongst those calling the postponement a joke frankly it needs to stop is his line Spurs say they're extremely surprised by the decision this is the 21st top flight match called off this season the big complaint is that Arsenal, at the time of requesting the cancellation or the postponement, certainly only had one positive COVID in their camp. They have a number of players at the African Cup of Nations. They have a number of injuries. None of those have anything to do with COVID. And as Spurs say, the original intention of the guidance was to deal with player availability directly affected by COVID cases. So one COVID case, people seem to think uh, Arsenal are not exactly obeying the spirit of the rule here. And that's the lead on the back page of the Sun as well. A picture of Conte, sick of it. Spurs, uh, we've been dealt with so unfairly. They're talking about their issues in Europe when they had a whole host of COVID cases and were uh, put out of the tournament. Prem Chiefs are accused of ignoring own rules. And then on the back page of the Mail on Sunday, Rafa Benitez out is their big headline. 
Everton act as Ida Goal ensures defeat at Norwich. Rafa Benitez set to be sacked as Everton boss. The club's owners locked in an emergency board meeting last night after their ninth defeat in 13 Premier League games. Nine defeats in 13. That is a bad run. The picture was of uh, Coutinho celebrating his goal as well. And then finally, the observer, clear blue skies. This is the best title I will have, says Guardiola, after uh, De Bruyne's brilliant secures the win. Gav, Sarah, you're both very welcome, Sarah. We'll start with Ashley Murphy. Before we get into the pieces, I mean, I can't think for a very long time of a murder which has so united the country in grief, anger, sadness, discussion. It's all anybody I meet is talking about at the moment, I have to say. Yes, I'm finding it incredibly difficult this week um, as a sportswoman in this country uh, to read about the murder and I suppose as a woman in this country to do, to firstly to, to read about her murder but what struck me this morning thinking about it was Ashling is the second uh, woman from a sports team in this country to be murdered this year um, Jenny Poole from Aaron's Isle uh, at club in Dublin was murdered last April so I imagine for her teammates this brings everything back and um, it's incredible to think that this story has happened again so quickly um, having been front and centre last April that male violence is a reason why one of our teammates is not turning up to training you know What has struck you about the conversation subsequent to the awful incident? That feeling of helplessness you know um, on a pitch uh, we're constantly supporting our teammates and looking after our teammates and encouraging and motivating each other. And I suppose there's a sense of isolation now because nobody was able to help her. And I don't know, uh, from the point of view of somebody involved in a team, you, you're always trying to, to help your teammate. And I think for, for them and, and for everyone, it, it's that sense that nobody could help her then on that day. Have your overall reflections on the past couple of days? Um, we've I've teenage nieces, so uh, I I don't want to talk to them about it. I don't think we should have to talk to them. Who they like to go for runs in the evening, you know, in winter evenings. So that's been really difficult. Just again, the helplessness that you, you feel like you can't, you shouldn't frighten them, you know. Um, just looking at the the writings in the Sunday papers, and I'm including myself in this. Like it's overwhelming uh, male commentators talking about this. And none of them were in a position to talk about it. I thought David Walsh had enough common sense to quote as many female experts in, there's no field, but, you know, in his piece. And I thought that 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 would get me to advise to go read his piece itself. But sports people can't ignore, ignore it. Um, I thought Lisa Fallon did a courageous, I know, sorry, it's not the Sunday papers, but I know Lisa Fallon did a, a courageous column on Friday in the Irish Times about it. Um, and I direct people towards that, but otherwise I just get in behind what Sarah said there that a uh, helplessness does does still linger in the mind. Mm. Uh, the vigils have been very powerful, Sarah. I would say as well. There's, I suppose, a place to go and um, consider, you know, y- your grief, and you know, I suppose the, the, it's it's an outlet for people because sitting in your car uh, crying which I have done a couple of days this week, 
that's a very lonely and isolating place. Mm. So I think to be able to go to a vigil and express your emotion and feel support, that's been helpful. But it's in the weeks and months ahead, uh, no more so for the girls in Erin's Island, Dublin. Uh, that's, that's when the support will be mostly needed. What kind of conversations are you having, Sarah, with your female friends or female family members, can I ask? Um, I suppose it's just that sense that that sense of frustration, first and foremost, uh, like I, I, I read uh, Michael Healy Ray and, and suggesting that I should carry mace, you know, then I, should I carry a Hurley? You know, when I go out for a run, sh- should I be carrying a weapon? Because it feels nonsensical to me that I should have to go out and protect myself before I leave my front door. And, and I think that's what everyone feels like. It shouldn't be a case of how many layers of armor can I put on just to be in the world. And that feels very trapping. And, and for all of us, I think it, it feels like our freedom is ebbing away every day with the measures that we have to take to be in the world. So when you go out for a run, we've heard lots of women talk about this, for instance, and David Walsh's piece focuses on just going out for a run initially, and that is the sporting component of this much wider story. When you go out for a run, are you on high alert, as so many women have discussed? Well, I don't... uh, I thought that running during the day would have kept me safe, so I chose to run during the day because of remote working, and it, it made more sense to me, but clearly that doesn't uh, help now. Um, I choose to run with my boyfriend now, you know, um, things things like that. And and he, I suppose prior to this, he would nearly feel that I was hysterical because I'd be saying, listen, I'm not comfortable going down that road. Do you, do you mind doing that route with me? And he's like, gosh, you're right, grand. And kind of rolling his eyes. But I think in the last week, he's seen how affected I've been by it. And I, and I think even for him, he's going, God, maybe she hasn't been as hysterical as as I thought she was being because genuinely I'm just expressing a sense of fear and I have been doing that for quite a while this isn't new but now it feels like even the measures that I take to run in daylight won't won't help you know I had a terribly depressing thought I want to put it to you and it's probably an upsetting thought really and I've spent a lot of the last couple of days just listening to every conversation I could and listening as much as possible reading as much as possible and so many of the accounts of women uh, when it comes to jogging or walking or just being in situations of vulnerability are awful. And I don't have those same experiences. I don't think about my run in accordance with the time of the day, for instance, or even what route I'm going to take ever. I've never once thought that ever. So things like the keys between the fingers and headphones in, but not on and fake phone calls going on, all that kind of stuff. I don't know. I mean, I'd like to think we don't live in such a horrifically dysfunctional society that there is genuine risk at every turn. However, it does seem the consequences of coming across that deranged person are so grave, even if the chances aren't especially high at every moment, the consequences are so grave that I don't know if there'll ever be a point across the decades in our lifetimes where women won't be on high alert in those situations. Again, I think and I hope the chances of something fatal happening are incredibly slim. And yet the consequences are so great. I don't know, Sarah, how at any stage, however much progress is made, you'll ever not look at that route and think, hmm, there is a chance. It might be a 1% chance, but it's such a 
It's such a horrific consequence. I can't take that chance. That's the most depressing thought I've had this week. I live uh, in a very, very quiet, uh, actual, I didn't realise how remote it was, uh, part of West Cork. And while it's not remote in the sense that it's quite central, quite close to Kinsale, so not remote, the road leading around our house is about eight kilometres and it's beautiful. Um, But less and less, I have been comfortable walking that road on my own with my headphones in and my sister's the same. It's because of that sense of fear of the unknown and that risk, that 1% chance that somebody on that road will be there that that won't um, treat you in the way that you should be treated. And uh, that's why I don't walk that road on my own, you know, and that's a really sad uh, indictment of the world that we live in that a beautiful place, you know, in West Cork is a place of fear for me um, on a random Saturday or Sunday afternoon. Gav, thoughts on that point? Yeah, there's even, we can't do anything about the, the horrific, dangerous people who exist in the world, but mm. we can do things about the, the peer pressure that happens where a group of lads on campus in UCD or UL, and I heard this this week, that women, like a lecturer in, in UL and teachers and female students don't feel safe running around the campuses in Ireland. And it's not because, it's not a fear of attack, it's a fear of abuse, you know, it's a fear of those little horrible things that are said when you run past and all that. And um, that is something we can address. Correct, yeah. And like, uh, if that is something we can come down with, with zero tolerance. And you put someone in jail for two weeks for abusing a woman who's out in the run and you plant down fairly quickly, you know what I mean? Like this talk of zero tolerance with these kind of things. But there is little things we can do to address the whole systematic problem in society, which can be done immediately. Mm. And it's happened in other countries where... Uh, go to jail in morocco about 10 years ago it was so bad you could go to jail for 10 you could go to jail for six months for catcalling on the street and i think one person it happened to one person one man but man the whistling stopped it didn't stop completely but it definitely stopped for a while you know and it changed maybe one or two attitudes yeah and we should talk about that and and that's very important and that's where if i said the first thought was very depressing maybe there's more optimism in terms of changing the overall culture but um that one culture has changed, Joe. Yeah, it has. But that, that you see so many women, young women out running in my area and everywhere. Same, yeah. Didn't yeah. see it before. So culture has changed. Yeah. Another one of the, one of the sexes just has to catch up. Yeah. It's just, I suppose, that high alert point and listening to the testimony, Sarah, and, and Anya Kerr was on during the week talking about how she mixes up her route. You know, again, this is this is just not stuff I'm thinking about. I don't like not to labor this point, but I suspect it's a horrible reality that just needs to be acknowledged. I don't know if we can solve it, but it's a horrible reality that I don't know if in 10, 20, 30 years when we talk, you'll say, oh, that 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 road now I'm totally fine with because there's 0% chance. I think that just seems to be this awful reality of being a woman. That's precedence, isn't it? So everything that's gone before, you know, the more and more that we read and the more and more that occurs, like, as I said, two female sportswomen in the last year have been murdered. And that is the reality for every ladies football and camogie team in this country this week. Mm. You know, uh, we can't ignore that. So we can't forget that. And that's that's why it's never going to go away. That's why there's always going to be that fear. To Gav's point about at least improving the culture. So David Walsh is talking about jogging, for instance, and 
Safety in numbers, daylight runs are preferable. Some women run with an alarm. Many take their phones for security, while still others inform a friend what, when to expect them back so that an alarm can be raised if they're not. Very few women feel they can put on their runners and just head out. There was a US Runners World magazine questionnaire, 5,000 mostly female runners last year. Survey showed 84% of the women have been harassed while running. Behaviour included catcalls, being followed, physical assault. 67% said they were sometimes concerned they'd be attacked while running and 16% said they felt threatened and feared for their lives. There was another survey in the UK recently as well. 27% told of having been followed by someone in a car, on foot or on a bike while out running. Sometimes it's a lewd comment. Other times it's silent intimidation. Often it's just common or garden harassment. So what about that aspect of the culture? And Gav mentioned Dollar Muldoon as well from University of Limerick talking about even the atmosphere in a college campus. What about those lower tier offences by comparison with murder? The, the atmosphere for you when you're out running, what's been your experience there? I think that on certain days you're very visible and other days you're completely invisible and it's the days when you're not expecting it are the days that are most frustrating. So we all have goals and, you know, we're going out to compete with ourselves, you know, sometimes and all of a sudden you're interrupted uh, and you're visible to somebody for no other reason but the fact that you're a woman and, you know, you're, as I said earlier, in the world and it's incredibly frustrating and exhausting for me to, I suppose, engage with that, right? Because I, I don't want that to be my constant. I want to focus on the run. So when I come home and I'm angry about it, uh, I want to try and forget it as quickly as I can. Um, I don't want to bring it up. And, and then even when you bring it up, people go, Asher, don't mind that. Don't let that get to you, you know? And, and there's a sense that we should move on as quickly because if you labor in it, then you're giving them a voice, you know, and you're giving them attention. And sure, isn't that what they wanted? So you're nearly trying to push it away to try and forget it as quickly as you can so that you can go out the next day and, and focus on the thing that's important to you. So it's incredibly difficult to find a balance between addressing it mm. and calling it out mm. for what it is and moving beyond it, not giving it attention so that they might actually stop. Because are they looking for attention or are they bored? I, I don't know which. I don't know what they're doing. I don't, I don't know what the intention is. Mm. Sir, I know, I know for a fact that uh, women in my family don't tell me about incidents that are not major when they go on runs because I'll, my reaction will be anger. Yeah. And I'll be like, oh, we have to go do something about this and make a scene. And that's my initial. And they just don't want to be dealing with me. They don't want to be dealing with that and then coming home and having to deal with Mr. Angry going, that's a disgrace. Let's go deal with it because I won't be able to deal with it in the right way. No. Well, like if I go for a run, I go my January night runs, I can do the exact opposite. I can put the music in. I can zone out and it's literally therapy because I know I'm safe and I can go up the mountains, Dublin, the foothills of the Dublin mountains and I can run around and not a bother on me and I can stop and someone comes towards me and I don't get frightened at all. I'm fine. A group of lads come towards me, not a bother on me, like not even a, not even a tiny bit of fear that you might have when you're younger it just doesn't exist in my in my psyche. So it's very hard. It's still even very hard. And you see it in the pieces that were written today. And I thought like Anya Care was brilliant uh, this week in that news talk se segment. Yeah. Um, I thought she really just laid it out in a lot of kind of a, a really logical, sensible terms. Um, but uh, yeah, it is. It has to spill into sport um, because it's about, we're talking about running. We're talking about what's the the basic premise of all sport, you know. And uh, it's 
it's a, it's, I say a lot of men are kind of being, uh, their eyes are being opened a little bit this week, which is, I suppose, a good thing, you know. Mm. And would it be very routine, Sarah? Not that if it happens once, by the way, it's in any way okay, but I mean, across a month, if you did a handful of jogs, would you anticipate a wolf whistle, certainly in a given month, or catcall, or beeping, or someone running too close to you? Is all of that stuff fairly commonplace, or, or less so in your experience? Yeah, it's pretty commonplace. And look, I'm not going to, I suppose, objectify women by saying that it'll happen to some more than others. It'll be both positive and negative. Mm. You know, it, it can be derogatory and it can be considered, you know, confidence boosting. Yeah. You know, some some would suggest that, oh, isn't it nice that he's telling you that you look you well, that you look well. And I'm saying, well, I don't I don't want to know his opinion of me. I don't want him to objectify me. I don't want him to have an opinion. So it's incredibly frustrating because it could happen. It, it could happen on a particular road because, you know, you're, it's, it's a busy road or, or it must, might just be one man standing next to a wall down a country road. It has, no, yeah. it has no sense or meaning to when or where it happens. It depends on the man sitting on the wall, do you know? Yeah. And pr- I, I would presume the horrible contamination for you is you spot the group of lads or just the man sitting on the wall from 50 or 100 yards away and you spend the 100 yards wondering, is it going to happen, is it not going to happen? And say it doesn't happen. That's been your, you know, that's been your lot for the 100 yards and then, you know, there's plenty of men every 100 yards. That's the energy that I, you know, the energy that I have to do worrying about what's coming. Mm. You know, I would much rather put my energy into my run, but I'm running nearly bracing myself for either something positive or negative. And if it's positive, it's still interrupting my day. You know what I mean? It's not something that I want or I, I didn't ask for it. So, uh, you know, I'm not going turning to the wall, objectifying the man sitting on the wall. He doesn't come into my frame of vision. So I don't understand why I should be in his frame of vision. Mm. Um, the, the, what's really chilling is that the, it, there hasn't been a generational change. Like it was normal for me, as I'm in my 40s, like in my teenage years, it was normal for us to make comments when we were in groups. And it was, you know, that was that was what we were encouraged to do as groups of lads. And that was kind of drilled out of us a lot as we kind of grew up. But it doesn't seem to have been drilled out of the current generation teenagers and people in their 20s that it's, um, it's still kind of what's, it's still what they do, you know. <clears throat> it's like the, the group dynamics still leads that way, you know. Um, yeah. We talk about men standing up. <laughs> you don't see it. You don't see it in, in elite sport anyway. Um, very rare. Like Seamus Coleman is, is is like this beacon on his own in Irish sport. He's actually stood up for um, his opposite numbers, you know, and when it comes to the equal pay thing for uh, Irish footballers. But um, I can't think of anyone off the top of my head in elite rugby, GAA. I'd be there to be corrected, like, um, who's really kind of taken a stance. for These are like, for like basic things for um, their wives, their daughters, their sisters, you know. Mm. I would say that the new GPA committee is very strong at the moment. Uh, Tom Parsons, um, Dolo Cusack, they have been incredibly helpful to the current GPA, women's GPA, um, in, in terms of navigating how uh, this year's funding will be uh, utilised and addressed. So they're, I suppose, following in, in Seamus Coleman's footsteps. And, and if Seamus was the first, they certainly had a brilliant beacon to follow. And, and they're taking you know, his lead which suggests that if more men stood up and 
called out this behavior, maybe we wouldn't be in this situation so frequently. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, Gav, I absolutely take your point on sentencing. But I've, a few times during the week, what resonated with me was the analogy to drink driving and how it genuinely has become socially unacceptable and you would be shunned if you were a regular or even a one-time drink driver. It would just not go down well. And we need to get to a point where the teenager or the 20-something-year-old or the 50-something-year-old behaves in a harassing way and turns around to his mates and is shunned. Doesn't get the laugh, gets the, no, that's not a line we cross treatment. And that has to become the norm. And Look, you see, there's so many aspects to this. And Maliki Clerkin used that great analogy of it's like wallpaper and you put down one bubble and another one bubbles up. I mean, we're talking about strangers interacting with women here. And yet, God, isn't the headline figure that we've all seen from Women's Aid that 87% of the murders happen courtesy of uh, people women know, partners, I would think, in the main. And we have this whole cohort of men who can't express themselves, I think, who resort to their fists, who weren't brought up the right way, who weren't educated, who probably have a latent misogyny. It was, you know, news to me, Nolan Blackwell, the Rape Crisis Centre CEO, said in The Late Late Show, wasn't a crime for a man to rape his wife in this country 50 years ago. Like, in, that's the blink of an eye in the evolution of a state. So that misogyny just doesn't evaporate, you know, and, and there are just so many angry men as well. You know, young and old, there are angry men out there. And I would suspect plenty of partners in the home have been victims of displaced anger. And it's unleashed behind closed doors. And before we talk about consent and sexual violence, and I don't know, I mean, I think your point about generations, Gav, is really interesting. Like I was I'm thinking a lot about my own upbringing this week. So I'm 36. All boys school, primary, all boys school, secondary, no sisters, two brothers, all my mates, generally male growing up, all the football teams I played on male. You know, that's that's the atmosphere. And you think back and like, it was like real lad culture. You know, the magazines. You think of Soccer AM, which was on when we were like, you know, this was like the most popular show on Saturday. And like there was the Soccerette section where mm-hmm. I, I think only with a tiny bit of irony, like there was some irony, but not much, where the good looking girl wore a jersey, tied it up and walked up and down and the lads all just lost their minds. You know what I mean? Like this was kind of... The culture, and I think my parents set a brilliant example. By the way, so I, geez, I want to be very careful here. And from their generation, took a quantum leap from '50s, '60s Ireland, took a quantum leap. But I would say the conversations amounted to like awkwardly giving you a sex ed book, and like the sex education in secondary school I had, and like conversations to like a group of thirty-six men in a class. How do we treat women? How do we approach relationships? How do we approach... It was none of that. It was like, if you don't wear a condom, you're going to catch some weird stuff. That was like, genuinely, that was kind of, that was it over half an hour. And like, I think our parents' generation did the best we could. I think we were raised in a certain environment. But I think like, the takeaway has to be for the next generation, like fathers, we're going to have to talk to our sons about consent. We're going to have to talk about pornography. Like, you know, the world of Wi-Fi was not available to us, thank God. I'm going to talk, talk about sexism, language used around women, um, all the key tenets of being a good partner. And I think that's, you know, it's it, the next generation just have to become such a focus as well as, you know, working on, on the current situation. But like for, for us, Gav, people our age, men our age in particular, like what we do with our sons now, it's going to be awkward. You know, they're going to be 
painful conversations, like probably have to be done in the car so we don't even look at each other at times to know. Like, yeah, but there's only just so much you can do, and eventually you're going to stick at their teenagers. And if you send them to this big all boys schools that exist in this country, and that's like that, still dominant, um, they're the influence of the lads in the classroom is going to have more influence than their dad. You know, after a while, it'll just. So that's where it is. Like, but but know, if, if it, all if all the dads are having conversations with all the boys. You know, look, there's going to be we, there's going to be issues. Of course, there are. But in terms of another leap forward, another another change, you know, you got to hope all the dads are having all the conversations. That's what we have to strive for. But I, I take your point. We have to deal in realities here as well. Well, to that point, I was at the Ireland All Blacks game and I was tipping down after Ireland's big win. And two guys were stood in front of me and they were Leinster based because of their accents. And one guy says to the other guy, listen, we're going to head to the pub uh, there. I'll put it into the WhatsApp group our location. And your man says, oh, listen, I left that group. Didn't like the tone of it. Sorry, lad. And he said, oh, right. Okay, I'll, I'll send uh, you a WhatsApp on, on your other number. No bother. Mm. And I just thought, like, that's a conversation that that happened three months ago. And and I that's still vivid in my head that the guy, you know, called out the lad culture in that group and said, sorry, lad, I left that group didn't like the tone of it mm. and I went I went wow so that's the kind of conversation that needs to be had you know mm. repeatedly mm. in these groups where these guys say lads the culture in this group is sick it's not for me I'm out but there's no in even in the whatsapp groups that aren't like that all the male whatsapp groups that I'm in there's no like positive reinforcement of women's sport or the, there's, there's never once been a comment about anything I've ever written about the female game in 20 years in journalism where someone's going to come around going Right. No, that's that's it. not even interesting because nobody wants to go near it. So I'm talking about the good people out there, the good fathers, the the good brothers, the good partners. They don't touch it with a ten foot pole, like you know, mm. because um, you leave yourself open to ridicule, you know. Yeah. Um, and also, everyone knows they're not perfect, you know. So they know well, that's that, the, that that is the other thing, you know. You feel like you can feel like a hypocrite. I'm sure. Yeah. So there's that's another element of it, but um. I guess it's, I don't, I don't have an answer at all, but education in schools, like my education in primary school, a mixed primary school, was very important for when I went into a single sex, male, big private school. I had the foundation of sisters in the kitchen and I had the foundation of primary school, but it was nowhere near enough to stop me from the influence mm. as a 12, 13, 14 year old to the popular lads, you know, and well, the funniest joke is always the filthiest joke, you know, so mm. like that was, that just overwhelms you. So get to the nub of that and we're taking a huge leap as a society yeah I thought Tommy Conlon wrote a very thought provoking piece I, I I don't know if you thought it was good bad and different I I, I, I find it very interesting and um, I'll probably read it again at some stage afterwards like he, he starts by uh, it doesn't take David Walsh's tack as you mentioned it's, it's not quoting uh, women Gav I'd say it's more the male perspective so he starts by quoting uh, Dr. Yuval Noah Harari, very well-known author at this stage and professor, and uh, just outlines the extent to which uh, violence is an aspect of humanity and uh, that very much what lies with men uh, down the years and talks about how there's an inherent cruelty, you know, going back over hundreds of thousand years. Tolerance is not a sapiens trademark. In modern times, a small difference of skin, colour, dialect, religion has been enough to prompt one group of sapiens to set about exterminating Another group, uh, Har- Harari adv- advances his theories as to why we are a cruel and dangerous species. But whatever the original reasons, we cannot doubt that we are. The scandalous history of the 20th century alone confirms that much. And he says, the vast canvas of violence 
stretching back over millennia, has been painted overwhelmingly by the male of the species. So he goes on to talk about attitudes to women and societal attempts to civilize these instincts are essentially an environmental response to a biological syndrome, an external bandage on a profoundly interior sickness and therefore painfully limited solution. Uh, current estimate, 4 billion males on the planet, even allowing for infants, boys, elders uh, and the great majority of peaceful men, that number still makes for a lot of potential and actual violence. It says, uh, state legislation, advances in the judicial system, more committed policing and education of boys and teenagers, the tabooing of crimes against women, all of it should continue and probably on a more comprehensive scale than ever before. But a lot of these measures are already in place to some degree or another and one wonders how effective they've been. He goes on to say, uh, many women will testify that men routinely treat them as prey too. He's talking about men and prey earlier on in the piece from an evolutionary point of view. Sexual prey, violence prey, homicide prey. Maybe therefore it's no coincidence, for example, that women will often refer to a pack night club as a zoo or a jungle. Maybe it's why one regularly sees women holding hands as they navigate the heaving drunken crowds of frustrated men in these venues. They are gazelles among the carnivores. Hashtag not all men. Hashtag too many men, me included. The male gaze, guilty as hell, he says. In bars, nightclubs, on television, at traffic lights, glimpsing female joggers on the run, idly assessing them without even thinking about it. Maybe this puts me on the same spectrum as the wretch who spotted the female jogger on the canal walkaway, walkway in Tullamore last Wednesday and inflicted upon her the ultimate male vengeance. Maybe more of us blokes are on that spectrum than we realise. The murder of Ashley Murphy demands some rigorous introspection. It's clearly long overdue. And then he says, one doesn't want to indulge in performative hand-wringing either. Most blokes that I know are sound, for whatever it's worth. If we've been slow to wake up to the reality of toxic behaviour towards females, it's because we've been cocooned in our privilege. And he says, maybe because we've grown up at a time as well when women are vastly more conspicuous in the workplace than they were two generations ago, we perhaps blithely assume that the old sexism plague was a fading force in society, which on reflection is a bit like assuming when Jackie Robinson became the first black man to play in Major League Baseball in 1947, the old racism plague duly began receding too. And then, uh, last point, he talks about the level of grief in the country and how, you know, teacher, hurler, musician, giver of light and goodness, we couldn't but be touched by what she symbolised. But it's the manner of her death that seems to have reached a communal core, the nihilistic attack on one so young and vibrant. Uh, it seems almost pointless at this stage to be fulminating about it in a newspaper article. A million of them have been written before over the decades and centuries. Man shows the better angels of his nature on a daily basis too, but the battle with his darkness is biblical, pre-biblical in fact, probably prehistoric, and it's preordained seemingly to reach as far into the future as it does into the past, unless a new enlightenment somehow someday arrives to illuminate our ancient man cave for good. I'm curious, sir, what did, what did you make? Because it was a, a male perspective, I think, and, and talking about men... Largely, he wasn't, wasn't trying to get into the female psyche here. He was accepting responsibility, first of all. Yeah. On the part of all men is what I felt. Um, and recognising that there is a problem as opposed to adding to the chorus of not all men. And that's, a, that's point one, that's step one. Um, I was a bit terrified to know that there was four billion men in the world. Um, that, <laughs> that threw me a little, but... I did appreciate and recognize that he was accepting that even the smallest glance, you know, at a female jogger in an assessment was beyond what is acceptable in the world because 
it felt to me like he was saying that every small increment, you know, adds to this bigger picture and everybody um, has a part to play. Mm. The only the only positive this morning is just, it's very hard to hide. Like you come on, if you're listening to this show now, uh, you'd hear what we're talking about. Most men I venture and would skip on a bit or wait for a bit later. But now when you you really tell me so many, I'd also suggest that it's overwhelmingly male audience. Tommy has. And yeah. I know I go to him every week, um, but there's nowhere to hide. You go to read your favorite columnist this week and he's writing about it. So that's, that's a positive, you know, that no one's shirking, which is just nowhere, literally nowhere to hide after what happened to Ashley Murphy, you know, so. Yeah. Like I, I thought Sarah, you know, Everybody's well-meaning, by the way, this week. So uh, mm-hmm. I don't mean this in a, in a particularly um, strong sense. But, the, you know, she was just out for a run. Well, if she was out for, like, a bunch of drinks with her mates, would that make it more deserving? Of course it wouldn't. It's so I, I, I had a slight problem with that she was just out for a run. Like, she can do what she bloody well likes, and, you know. So that was there. So I thought when Tommy went beyond just the running and, and that point about, you know, uh, maybe it's why one regularly sees women holding hands as they navigate the heaving drunken crowds of frustrated men in these venues. Uh, hashtag not all men, hashtag too many men, me included. The male gaze, guilty as hell, bars, nightclubs and, and so on. I mean, and w- so, you know, he concludes that demands introspection for everyone reading. It's for, it's for all of us to go off and yeah, think when I was, better when I was 22, When I was 22 or 23, Joe, I could get drunk and walk home on my own, no bother. Uh, I don't even have to remember it, you know. Mm. Um, it was just easy. I could, I've done it countless times, you know. So the uh, and you're so so many so many women leave these areas because there's too many men in them, and they just want a bit of peace and quiet on their way home, you know. Mm. That's 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 the real horror here, you know. Mm. But I thought it was good he moved it to that area as well, Sarah, not just the out for a jog in the daytime. Yeah, absolutely, and, and that that's I suppose my biggest takeaway from the article was that he did put the. The, I suppose, emphasis firmly on men's behaviour and how men can impact the freedom that women feel in the world. Mm. I don't want to segue straight into a sports piece. I think we've, we've hopefully given this um, due uh, time. We'll take a very short break and we'll come back and go through the rest of the sports stories with Sarah Donovan and Gavin Cummins, who we'll are back in just one moment. Okay, you're welcome back to the paper review. We have Sarah Donovan, Olaran Kamogi winner with us. We have Gavin Kumuski of the Irish Times as well. Uh, there's uh, quite a few pieces to chat about. Dermot Crowe's fascinating piece on management and how it's changed. We have a queue of people to take down Novak Djokovic. We have a fascinating interview with the former rugby player Kieran Lowe. We have Mick Foley on GA audiences. We have Shane Lowry and his decision to go to Saudi Arabia discussed. After the conversation we've just had, Gavin, let's talk about the least important thing I can think of. Uh, Bernard Jackman, I'm sure you're watching Munster uh, on Friday night, and in Bernard Jackman's opinion, they were pretty much as rigid as ever, and he doesn't hold out much hope of them winning any silverware. He just looks at this team and can't get over how conservative they are, is the essence of Bernard Jackman's point. Yeah, um, they look like, they have done for a while, like a, a poorly coached team. A good one now because you can see the players are there. Um, Johan van Graan has been uh, desperately unlucky uh, in the sense that his star eight half has been injured for most of his time, and I still think it's the best second round in the world. Orgy Snyman, and then the, the other second row they signed from South Africa, Iman Jenkins, have all been injured. So he's tried to play a South African game without the actual South Africans. <laughs> it just can't be done. He's pretty much 
The game, the game, the game plan was perfect, except for the core element <laughs> isn't on the pitch. But other than that, we're going to stick to it. He's ignored a young Johan Hearn, the young Munster lock, who should have come through a year ago. I know there has been a couple of injuries and all that. And he's just not given him the game time he, he would have gotten every other province. Um, yeah, and this, I took Jackman's really good column because Victor Matfield, uh, Johan van Graan won't give anyone any insight into his thought process. And uh, he hasn't got a rough ride at all then in Munster from uh, the local uh, in questions, you know. Um, and like he's the way he snapped at Murray Kinsla was a, a kind of a show of his true colors on TV there a few weeks ago. And I thought Murray handled it quite well. And this went on to the next question. I, I, I just want to intervene on his behalf there. I think a show of his true colors is harsh. I think his true colors seem, I think he seems like a pretty decent fella. I think it was a show of defensiveness and feeling very under attack as opposed to his true colors. That feels a bit which harsh. Has happened, which has happened every time he's been put under a little bit of pressure. Sure. So. The, the, it, it is either one of two things. It's an inability to communicate, mm. which means you're 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 lacking a key key pillar of being able to do a head coaching job at a big club, mm. or it's just a refusal. So he anyway, he was on the phone to Victor Matfield. He told him what he really thought, and Victor Matfield went on TV and said, uh, explained what the thought process was that I don't have my best players, and that's yeah. Van, Van Grand's uh, via this route that went out. And when, when the question was put to Van Grand, as Jackman notes. He goes, I'm not on Twitter. So again, when he's put under a tiny bit of pressure, he gives an ignorant response, right? He mm. gives a response that's rude and that shuts it down. And he's got, he does not, he does not, he'll wait till he gets the bath and he'll, he won't get an easy ride. Wait till they get a hold of him in bath and the results start, don't turn. And he's given all that money and all those players. I'm sure he'll sign Jenkins, try and sign a Jenkins or an Orgy Snyman. Ironically, I thought the reason why Van Graham was leaving was because he couldn't get, keep uh, Snyman and, and Delande for another two years, but then Orgy Snyman went and resigned. So I don't know. The Jackman's column is very good and word to read because it gives you a little insight into what's really going on. Yeah. I thought like the Stephen Larkham, the player, and Stephen Larkham, the coach, are two completely different entities. Um, if Larkham was of the same standard of coaching as Andy Friend or Stuart Lancaster, we would have heard or seen it by now as an attack coach. And we just simply haven't. And so he's off. And Jackman's was a really telling line that kind of uh, he says about Larkham, I mean, his contacts in Australia say he's a very conservative coach by nature uh, with a fondness for kicking. I know. That that jumped which, out as well. And like which, when he arrived, there was such a, it's like, oh God, Stephen Larkham with his hands and Joey Carberry and this monster attack and wow, watch yeah. it blossom. Did they not do their due diligence? Or sorry, well, maybe they... Here, how they, did Larkham get here, Joe? You know, what, what happened? Didn't Cheka just throw him to the walls when he was trying to keep his own job in the Australian backroom? There was so, a par- parting of the ways, certainly, yeah. Yeah, no, don't get me wrong. Lancaster arrived here at a very low ebb. Uh, Andy Friend didn't come in here as this uh, with this massive reputation. So it is Ireland can become a place for rebuilding uh, your reputation if you're a good coach. Um, Johan van Graan's been there for a long time. We, it right now it goes down as a failed period of time. Unless you know there's still a bit of time. There's still a really good squad there. Mm. Um, they've got some of the best players that ever played for the province, and they have no medals in their pockets. Um, so. There is a huge motivation for them to get their act together. But um, what happens is he, he, Van Graan is clearly a good coach. You know, He's a coach that can get a team to a certain level. Um, and with Bath, he'll be given lots more funding to try and really prove his worth. And I'm sure he's a way better coach now than he was when he arrived because he was very young, very inexperienced. He was coming off the back of coaching a desperate South African team, like one of the worst South African teams you've ever seen. He came from that back room into Munster. So, you know, 
when you get put under pressure, and he is, from my brief uh, meetings with him, he seems like a very decent man, you know, mm. um, good young coach. But when he gets put under a tiny bit of pressure in the media, which is part of the job, you know, like you don't see uh, Stuart Lancaster or Leo Cullen. Leo Cullen got hammered at the start of his career. Um, he got it, he, he again probably got it too soon, you know, and mm. just survived. And his communication was poor and he fixed it, you know, and he, he's now, you know, you can go, I can give you multiple examples of if you don't know how to talk to the media, you are missing one of the key elements of a head coach. No, I accept that. Yeah, I accept times. that. Uh, Bernard and Jackman. There, sorry, go on, sorry, excuse me. Finish your point, Gav. Yeah, just saying that they're, they're in a really bad place. They're winning uh, via uh, like a, a bit of excellence from a bit of, you know, the, the monster spirit is still there. Right? And the whole thing about monster for the last few years was the spirit's never going to go away. You know what I mean? It's always going to be there, that aggression, that intent, that get you down into Tottenham Park and do things to you that you no know, no team can, can cope with. But it needs expert coaching. It needs elite coaching. And it doesn't look like it has it at the moment. Yeah. Uh, some of the things uh, Bernard Jackman says, he accepts Munster actually on the face of it are doing okay. They're going to have a home quarter final, only lost a few games in the URC. He said, we need to look beyond the results to get a better sense of where Munster are. In the last four matches, they've averaged 15 points scored and they're far more comfortable without the ball than with it. And he said of the win, even in France on Friday, it, they've been doing well in the top 14 of late, won three in a row. But he said this was a second string selection. You know, this, this is important context for any fan of judging things this was a second string selection crowd restrictions less of a cauldron and they had six COVID cases late in the week it was no surprise the bookies had Munster 10 points favourites and uh, he mentions you know the halfbacks Murray, Casey, Carberry Crowley, Healy he compared them to what the likes of Jack Carty or Johnny Sexton have around them where he says in, in those latter cases the structure is there set in stone and they just have to pull the strings Munster apart from the crossfield kick to Keith Earls from uh, the scrum in the first half had no creativity offset piece on uh, Friday and he said on, unless it's found as in the improvement player led or coach led he says unless it's found some Munster players having spent a decade in red without any silver where to show for it will continue which would be uh, something those players will regret for a lifetime so he's not holding out much hope could I, in the interest of keeping us moving forward, Sarah, get you to take us to the Dermot Crow piece, which is very interesting. And you're in dressing rooms, so I like your perspective. This is going to be fascinating. I'm, I, we hear all this secondhand, I think, Gav and I generally, about the changing face of a dressing room. And uh, Dermot Crow has done just a great thing, I think, smart thing. He's talked to a bunch of managers. What's your sense of the young player today and what are you hearing? I think his jumping off point is uh, Mickey Hart's recent autobiography where he notes that in the modern day dressing room on the way home from a defeat, as opposed to 20 years ago when there was awful, heavy silence on the bus, this modern generation, there'll be a few laughs and a few giggles and Mickey Hart sitting there wondering, does this mean as much? Are you as accountable? And that's his springboard to talk to various managers who I would say, Sarah, have contrasting views on the current generation, which is always interesting. Yeah, I read obviously Conor O'Donoghue, uh, Colm Collins. Um, so Colm Collins is the care manager. Conor O'Donoghue has been involved in Mead for the last 10 years. Uh, both very different experiences of management and coaching. And what jumped out at me was Conor O'Donoghue's quote where he said, I think you have to get the balance between support and challenge right with the current group of players. So Mickey Hart is obviously saying, how much does it really mean to players when they lose now? And that was his big concern because back in the day, as you said, mass silence, nobody speaking, grave, you know, 
upset and now he can hear ripples of laughter in the bus. And the current day player, Conor O'Donoghue, is saying they don't necessarily take authority well. Mm. I, that's what I'm reading from it. He mm. said they, they want a relationship that's mutual, that's mutually respectful. They're, they're, they're not looking for a dictatorship. And you have to try and balance supporting players and challenging them to get the best out of them. And it was, now, it, that's, it was interesting. It was why he said the Mourinho style of management is on the way out. The dictatorial type of management. And based on my experience, I would agree. Um, there's players that need support and there's players that need challenge. And you've nearly said the wrong thing when you realise who needs the support and who needs the challenge in a current dressing room. Um, I, I think that Colm Collins had a very interesting um, angle as well. Mm. In previous years, as a player, you would train two nights a week, you would go home and you would read in the paper on Sunday where you're going to be playing the match the following week. Now it's WhatsApp groups, it's gym conditioning, it's constant communication interaction. There's a new um, thing that the girls are using with Dublin, Actimet. Every night you go home and you log your recovery, you know, how long it takes your recovery to recover after a session. You grade the intensity of your sessions. You are constantly engaged and logged in. You're, you never leave the dressing room or the pitch for the duration of the week, or certainly that's what it feels like to me. And, and that's what it feels like to Colm Collins. And he's saying, we nearly need to give players a break because we're asking them to be switched on 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I don't think Mickey Hart probably had that experience initially. And now in the last number of years has experienced that. Uh, and I suppose the gravity of, of what they're both saying is that are, are we losing um, that team element to games because we're, we're focused on the individual so, individual so much and how they interact with the team and the group that we're making it too personal? Are, are we making the game too personal? And that goes back to Mickey Hart's point. How much does he really care? Uh, and that's something that I'm looking at based on Dermot Crow's article. Mm. You know those that you know that nightmare dressing room after you've underperformed and you're all sitting around and it's just like a funeral. But that to hear a bit about twenty minutes later if you're on a bus, to hear a few lads having a bit of crack down the back. Like that's okay. That means they're not going to be depressed and wallowing themselves for a few days. That means they know that in two days' time they're going to get flogged and then pulled pulled out on videos and everything. So if they're having a bit of, you know, if they're, if they're going to, it shows that they're, that they're actually just a bit of hope, you know, if, yeah. if the lads are having just, if there's a bit of laughing and giggling on a bus, it's probably their only chance to do it as well. I know. They're not going to be able to it's a, it all, so why not? Like, it's such know? a weird one, isn't it? Because like, I, de I definitely you know? see, I, I, like I see Mickey Hart's, I see where he's coming from and I, I know what Roy Keane would think at the front of that bus and yet I, I, I hear you as well. <laughs> like, a 24-year-old Roy Keane was probably having the crack on that bus no matter what, like, you know? Yeah, maybe, yeah. yeah. And that was the best version of him. <laughs> <laughs> Colin Collins, interestingly, because there's a lot of talk of how it has changed so much. Colin Collins said something. I honestly feel youngsters today are no different to youngsters in the past. I don't think kids change. I think probably there's more temptations and stuff out there now. I suppose gambling because of the online presence, that whole thing has become a bigger issue. And he mentions uh, three players under his tutelage down the years who've had to go into counselling for gambling addiction, though he's not naive enough, he says, to assume it was just three who had their issues in that hand. But he said, very resilient is his uh, sense. The fellows that come into us, you get seriously resilient guys guys who come up against any adversity and others where a little thing would put them off but I don't think there is 
inherently anything different between kids now and 30 years ago was Colin Collins' assessment. Um, Derek McGrath definitely agrees with that. He doesn't believe Derek McGrath modern players are less resilient and more high maintenance, though the environment and society that they come from has changed. Because definitely the others are saying, no, no, it is, it's much more high maintenance. So kind of interesting. And actually, uh, Derek McGrath loves like the Paul Mannion decision not to go back with Dublin. It looks like he's had a disagreement, but I think, no, players are just planning. And he mentions a player of his who just wanted to go off travelling. I like hurling and I love travelling, was what the player said to him. And he kind of thought, well, good luck to you. That's no bad thing. I guess maybe 20, 30 years ago, that wasn't happening as much. But uh, I see they lean into Eddie Jones, which is not, not a million miles away from the Joe Schmidt school as well. Like people after two or three years under these guys say it's almost impossible. Like look at the turnover of coaches under Eddie Jones in England. Because it's too times, intense. Like, it's the too Times intense. actually did a... Times did a massive piece there at the end of last year where they interviewed, they got in touch with as many of the assistant coaches and the backrooms of Eddie Jones. Yeah. They got to a World Cup final and he won a bunch of Grand Slams and he's done things that English rugby's never done before. But uh, it's hell on earth for them. Some people just can't cope with it. Like, they've just walked out. Mm. Um, he, it, it is definitely a dictatorship. And I think, I imagine Pep Guardiola's uh, reign is a complete dictatorship. But instead of feeding them with, like, what Mourinho would say, which would be, like, psychological stuff, he feeds them with detail and information and he overwhelms them with that and they either get they can either cope with it or they can. Mm. So like there is still room for dictatorships in sports. I, think. Mm. I loved um Connor McKenna's interview uh with the lads and the with uh with off the ball just after they won the All Ireland and he's probably the antithesis to Mickey Hart because he basically disliked everything about structure and uh, the organization involved in in playing inter-county football and he had such a lightness about his um, engagement with GA. You know, he doesn't even want to play league football on a Sunday. I think he was looking for a dispensation um, for for the winter months because he just didn't want to engage with club football on a Sunday in Tyrone. And Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. But you know what? Like, he, his is the opposite to, to the Mickey Hart uh, school of football. And maybe, you know, him being involved this year uh, and enjoying his football this year speaks volumes for the type of environment he was looking for as a player involved in sport. And it doesn't suit everybody. And, and it goes back to Conor, Conor O'Donoghue's point. Some players need support and some players need challenge. Yeah. Something totally different. And I suspect uh, this story will grow over the coming weeks as we head towards the Saudi Arabian Invitational. Shane Lowry's decision to play is addressed by Matt Cooper in the Sunday Business Post. Sarah, I know you brought that piece to our attention and Shane McGrath as well in the Mail on Sunday so for instance Shane McGrath's piece very even I would say uh, very fair Larry should not be scapegoated for golf's ills but ignoring Saudi issue is not tenable so he starts off by saying Shane Larry's not a politician he is a man trying to provide for his family he says the same argument could be made by the hundreds of young Irish people who move to Saudi Arabia and enjoy tax-free salaries as a way of providing foundations for their futures they're making money planning for the years ahead he says, uh, though, that contention is somewhat shakier, of course, where it's made by a millionaire sports star with an international profile who can presumably pick and choose his engagements with more freedom than the average 20-something. He said of Larry, uh, he's an easy target in the way Newcastle were when they were taken over by the Saudi Public Investment Fund. Hammering Larry allows some to strike indignant public postures and to display their own virtuousness, an irritating feature of a world that transmits like a virus does say, though, the notion that Larry, one of the most popular figures in Ireland, can 
eschew uh, engagement with the wider issues around Saudi Arabia because he isn't a politician simply is not tenable. You don't need to stand for election to have a view on some of the grotesque features of the kingdom's society. And so that's Shane Lowry. Uh, also adds, a career in politics isn't necessary to assess Saudi Arabia or process it or to formulate a view on it. This is where Shane Lowry's case was at its weakest. And there was comfort in the old falsehood that sport and politics do not mix, but it was always rubbish. Uh, the position takes may be difficult to defend, but it's understandable. Let's not pretend, though, that only politicians can have a view, what, uh, whatever about taking a stand. And then um, Matt Cooper concludes that um, Shane Larry may well wish to may, may well come to wish he'd never signed this three-year deal. He's been going to Saudi Arabia the last uh, two years. Golfers tee up to give credibility to sports washing Saudi event. Um, this arose this week, if you missed it, in that there was a conference call to promote the event and Shane Larry was one of those on the call. So many of golf's top stars are going to this, by the way, and appearances fee, appearance fees are very generous, we're hearing. And like Shane said, uh, effectively, look, I'm not a politician and also I'm a golfer and I'm trying to provide for my family. And so I'm happy to go and play there and that's where I am on this. And I noted on the call trying to get a full transcript of it. It was hard, though. But, like, Tyrrell Hatton was then asked to follow up. What you, well, where are you on this? And he said, I have nothing to add. So I think Shane probably was trying to be honest and in doing so has held himself up for more criticism on the basis of his argument for going is my reading of the situation. Uh, Matt Cooper goes along similar lines to Shane McGrath. He said, uh, and, he, and, you know, he highlights the wider hypocrisies here. If Saudi Arabia wasn't such an important supplier of oil to the Western world, it's almost certain it would be treated as a pariah state. Now, of course, it is a supplier of oil and it's probably not treated like a pariah state. So, um, your thoughts on the pieces, Sarah? I know you mentioned the Matt Cooper one first, or Gav, I hear you coming in. Jump in by all means, yeah, sorry. They could, but like, if it's a golf tournament, it, you could be in Dublin. You're just going to, you're going to go on your first class flight. You're going to get your, the car will be, whatever sponsored car will pick you up, bring you to the hotel hotel, back in car, golf course. So you're not actually going to see anything. No. Well, maybe they should all just bring their wives and see how they get on when they're off practicing and see how things go. Or um, ask about, about, I'm sure that every golfer has a gay friend. Just ask about that. Maybe just, they don't have to go public about it, but just educate themselves a little bit and they can come back with knowledge that they can write about in their memoirs. Um, that'd be what I said. I thought, Shane's, I wouldn't, I don't see any reason to have a go with Shane Lowry here. He's, again, Again, he's not on. He's he's not doing this on his own. You know, he's part of the the group. But he did say in one of his quotes, "I left all that to my agent." But I'm pretty sure I had to go uh, to get a release from both tours to go play. I think the quote of "I left all that to my agent" should be something after what Djokovic has gone through. I don't think anyone should be mentioning their blaming their agent for it anymore. Um, you make these decisions yourself. You know. Yeah. I I would think, based on what I can see in the states, certainly golfers are. Uh, not of a high profile level in the States. And so, you know, Phil Mickelson's going, doesn't need the money. Uh, Dustin Johnson's gone for many years. All the best golfers in the world are going stateside, but they're such smaller fish in a huge pond that they're not attracting scrutiny and criticism, really. Whereas Shane Larry is a very big fish in this rather small pond. So I think this is probably the most scrutiny and criticism Shane Larry has ever faced, Sarah. What's your read on the coverage and on the story as a whole and on the decision to go and, and what he had to say about it, I suppose? See, Shane Larry has been such a, a positive proponent of women's sport. Back as far as 2014, um, we were involved in a coin toss with the Camogie Association back in 2014 and Shane Lowry, who had a link with the Dublin Camogie team at the time, 
tweeted out that we should be entitled to a rematch. And this spurred massive interest and resulted in us, in fact, getting our big day out in Semple Stadium and getting a rematch and not having to play an All-Ireland quarterfinal as a coin toss. And going back that far in terms of, of his interest in women's sport and women's equality and women's rights and, and what he's done in the last year and two years, uh, the you know, 20 by 20 can't see, can't be campaign and he's wearing the logo on his T-shirts and, you know, speaking about his daughter and speaking about her future and what he wants to see for her as a woman in Ireland and as a woman in sport. And he constantly promotes equality and positivity. And unfortunately, the country that he's choosing to make a living in, in the next couple of weeks, has no... Um, I suppose, emphasis on women's rights and treats women as second-class citizens. So it's an unfortunate way to make a living. Yeah. And uh, that's how I would see it because he's done so many positive things for women in sport in Ireland. And Leona Maguire, massive proponent supporter of, of her, you know, and, and her golf career amongst, as I said, other women, including us uh, lowly Camogie players. So just really disappointed that one of the quotes that he has here is, I'm happy to go there. Mm. Unnecessary, you mm. know? Mm. I don't think golfers are going to change society. I think that's been proven for a while now that they're not going to be the uh, the beacons of hope in society when it comes to obvious decisions. Um, when it comes to the choice of money or human rights, I think I think it's proven that they're going to go. And, and most sports people, to be honest, um, I think human rights are not going to win out but if it doesn't impact their putting green in their garden or whatever. Yeah. I would say Shane is, and I've been interviewing him for a long time, and you know he, one of the first people I remember interviewing when I worked in the show, and just so decent, and always remembered your name, and is a great fella. I would say that without hesitation. And yet I would also, and they don't have to be mutually exclusive. It doesn't mean Shane Larry is suddenly a bad person, and I mean that sincerely. It doesn't. But of course, I disappointed to be honest, and in, I think, trying to be honest, and I think he was trying to be honest, actually, as opposed to Tyrrell Hatton saying, I have nothing to say about this. I think Shane was trying to say, look, I'm a golfer, not a politician, and I'm I'm here to provide for my family. That's what I'm trying to do. I but think, he's not on the bread line, Joe. I think like, that's, that, that was what rankled, and I think that's almost going to prompt more criticism because on the I'm, go I'm a golfer, I'm not a politician, that suggests there's no in-between. That suggests to assess what Saudi Arabia are doing here requires a professional level of politicking and it doesn't, you know, at what point are you just a citizen of the world? At what point do you say nothing or think nothing about anything? And at what point do you do something? And in the past, as you referenced, Sarah, he's done great things and his support of Offaly GEA shows, I think, somebody very engaged with his community. And that's why it's a touch surprising here in this instance, because it's not a complicated situation. It's just not. It's a very straightforward one. And this isn't Mercedes hosting a tournament in Saudi Arabia. This is the very, uh, you know, th th this is the royal family. This is Saudi Arabia. Uh, guilty, I would say, of all the things that they've been accused of across most spheres. So it's, it's, it's a direct engagement with them. That doesn't require you to be a politician. And just saying, I'm a golfer and I think about nothing else, that doesn't really wash. And then the second point, the I'm just trying to provide for my family, Look, it comes across as tone deaf because I accept golfers. It can all end in the morning. You can get the yips. Unforeseen things can happen. Now, it's not going to happen to Shane Larry, but to date, he's earned 20 million in prize money and 
sponsorship besides and will probably be still playing golf in 20 years. And so he's richer than 99.8% of the planet. And so providing for my family, it doesn't wash in the same way. I don't think I would hold it against someone who was toiling away on 30 grand a week for 10 years and then got offered 2 million to go to Saudi Arabia for a few years work. That's transformational money. This isn't transformational money for Shane. This is a nice bump up to a very nice bank account already, unfortunately. That's all it is. It's not transformational. It's not the difference between providing or not providing. That same week, he could compete for a million dollars first place prize money in Pell Beach. He has that option, you know. And so when it's not even a difficult one, when it's not even like a difficult ulterior, it's doubly hard to kind of say it's okay. Now, I still like Shane Larry. I still admire Shane Larry in so many ways, but I don't think going to Saudi Arabia is admirable. Can I just say, all you, all the golfers have to do is watch, say it this air beforehand, the Amazon Prime Jamal Khashoggi uh, documentary. <laughs> like, it's it'll, If that doesn't make you stop holds and have a look at your decisions in life, but and maybe just being devil's advocate and trying to be fair to him, yeah. maybe he looked at this and goes, I'm going to get hammered for a week for this, but if I pull out and become the guy who stood up to Saudi Arabia, the professional sportsman, does that follow me around forever? You know, mm. um, maybe I'm just saying. Yeah. Be fair to the man because we know he's a decent, uh, decent human being. Like everyone, everyone in, in on this conversation knows that. Um, so maybe that's it. There, you know, maybe he was just like thinking of a long game, going, "I'll, I'll just get out, get the head down, do this with everyone else." And uh, because, like, like it's proven that they're a murder state. Yet we, every, all the major governments in the world are, are still do business with them. So, mm. you know, it, why, why should I have to be the person who every time? Shane Lowry gets mentioned for the rest of his career. Is he the guy who stood up to Saudi Arabia? Does he want that in his life? Maybe not, you know. Mm. So just to be fair, but... Oh, I think there's lots of mitigating circumstances. Absolutely. Like he is just playing a golf tournament. It's not a full-on endorsement. It's an implicit, you know, it's part of this sports washing mission. It's an endorsement in that sense, but it's not an explicit one. And I don't think Shane Lowry espouses any of the values that we're criticising of Saudi Arabia. And we're all hypocrites here, by the way. All three of us have bought clothes made in sweatshops and probably continue to do so and are not thinking about that enough. You know, to take one example, top of the head, that was mentioned on Golf Weekly this week, we're all hypocrites, but I suppose... Peter Laurie was on Golf Weekly this week. He said, with great success comes a certain degree of responsibility and you have options, I suppose, and that's why it's arisen. I don't know, it's, it's a tough one. I don't think this defines... Shane Larry, I, d- I don't think he loses the admiration, Sarah, of the vast, vast majority of the country either, in gen- in wider terms. No, I know he doesn't. But Saudi Arabia is such a ridiculous place to fall on your sword. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the thing. That is the thing. That is the thing. Yeah. I, I respect that he's being honest and, and we value his honesty. And, you know, we've enjoyed so many good interviews with Shane Lowry over the past 10 years. So many good ones. So his honesty is to his detriment in this case. I would, by the way, give honourable mention for uh, probably one of the least appreciated sports people on this island, which Roy McIlroy, who we've never quite, I don't think, taken to our hearts for some reason. I don't know, is it maybe we see him as Northern Irish and that's it? I don't know if we feel he's more planet Nike and citizen of the world than than ours in the same way like Larry, who'll be having a pint at the local and going to Crow Park is, or Harrington, who's such a Dublin everyman, but... Uh, Rory McIlroy, when the Saudis first started getting involved in golf, he came out strongly and he didn't just say, I'm not interested. He said, I don't like where the money's coming from. And he said that in explicit terms. Now, it's a brave thing to take on the Saudis. 
you know, it's, like in any number of ways, would you trust the Saudis not to hack into your computer and find some way to ridicule you and do all sorts? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> sure, it was they a, hacked into Jeff Bezos's computer. They probably hacked into us already. They're probably reading the tweets. <laughs> Correct. Now. So if they're going at Bezos, they could go at Macro if they wanted to. But he came out and he said, "I don't like where the money's coming from," and he's been one of the real leaders on that front. And he's not going to Saudi Arabia. And I guarantee you, he was offered a lot of money, and he's not going. And He's one of the very, very few golfers taking that stance because the other point to make here, Shane Larry amongst his contemporaries is not doing anything out of the ordinary. He is not doing anything out of the ordinary and that is the environment in which he's making his living. So in that sense, McElroy's done an incredible thing and I saw Andy Murray during the week who, by the way, is coming to the end and like will be thinking, God, my big paydays are behind me increasingly. He was offered a seven-figure sum to play one match in Saudi Arabia and said no. You know, these people are really should be celebrated as well. Yeah. Uh, Andy Murray's going to be a, a massive commentator for the rest of his life, though, in, in sport, if he wants it, you know, yeah. um, because he, he he's quite moralistic and where he comes from and his stances on things and going after Egypt. Um, so, yeah. But Michael, so McElroy's the hero. You yeah. think you're afraid to Nigel Farage, are you? <laughs> oh, well, that was a beauty. I didn't want to say his name. That was a straight set, game set and match tweet, wasn't it? Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. So look, it's tricky. I, I I think Shane will find the criticism very difficult, and that'll be tough for him because he's not used to it because he's so beloved. Exactly, and that's probably why it's harder to take. I, I I hold him in very high esteem, having gotten to play in Simple Stadium, because of the little, you know, the little fight he took on our behalf, and uh, he's just he's just shining a little less brightly for me today. Okay, uh, to someone who's shining brightly for everyone, Novak Djokovic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a thing on on the show when we're having our production meetings there are certain stories where I'll say to the team or whatever if it's been covered a lot and it's becoming a touch overdone or boring I'll say well if we're doing that we need a high threshold guest like we've got to do something really good here for this piece to to work Novak Djokovic for me and the Sunday papers today needed really high threshold stuff I didn't care anymore <laughs> I'm so over it so uh I read all the pieces as a professional courtesy, but if I was at home having a cup of tea and with the feet up, I would have glanced at a Novak headline and just turned the page. So that's where I was on Novak, I have to say. Ollie Holt goes to town on him in the Mail on Sunday. Uh, there's Stuart Fraser in the Sunday Times. Eamon Sweeney gives him a good kicking as well in, on the back page of the Sunday Independent. So I don't know, Sarah, where were you in the Djokovic story and, and how did you find any of the pieces? Ironically, for some reason, I was awake at six o'clock this morning and... Uh, Obviously, the uh, live feed was on, and uh, thirty thousand people were tuned in to the. T- uh, to the You're yeah, kidding. thirty thousand. <laughs> thirty thousand people tuned God's in sake. to the decision. Yes, yeah, I don't know why I was wide awake, <laughs> but I was, um, and I was very relieved that uh, I suppose sense prevailed. Um, there's lots of people who have suffered immeasurably in Australia and even here in Ireland, not being able to in contact with their family over the last two years and you know he was making a mockery of of the rules and uh, no more so than all of the inconsistencies and the discrepancies in in terms of his positive COVID case or otherwise or when it was filed and as Gavin alluded to his agent dealing with things that were left to be dealt with and weren't dealt with correctly and ultimately uh, he was deported and I couldn't see any reason why he should be left to play in the tournament because he didn't follow the rules. 100% Sarah but Scott Morrison's spin doctor is having a lovely uh, brunch this morning because he? he's absolutely nailed it what they did they politicised the whole thing 
they could have just stopped them, you know. They could have just checked, were you in Spain or did you lie on this document? And just not even let them get on the plane from Dubai. It, it could have easily been done, but they let it happen because they wanted to politicize it because there's an election coming up. So that's why it feels a bit... Like, like you can understand why people, like even Nadal, who was so obviously, he was there going, he's known about this for months. But even he felt real sympathy for him about the second or third time he spoke about it because he was being made an example of. Mm. And it was like, us Aussies will do it because they've always had strict border control anyway, just like a TV show about it. And he was like, us Aussies have shown that we put this lad in a poor detention hotel, just like everyone else. They they handled it so, it, it's reflected really badly on Australian politics, on governance and I agree, communication. Yeah. And it's, they, they've come out of it looking like, um, oh, we've, we've hoodwinked the world and, you know, we've made him an example. I say the relations between Serbia and Australia and Serbs and people from the Balkans living in Australia, that's going to resonate for a while because they know what's happened. They know it's politicized. But having said all of that, it's namely no other person in the world could lie or get their agent to fill out a form to get into a country during COVID and get away with it, which he almost did. Like for that alone, um, for the lie and for the, the pictures with the kids, which he said he didn't know he had COVID, he hadn't got the result back. And then doing the interview with Lequeep, um, like that there just shows you just how like his attitude is so cavalier. And it's as if he's kind of pitching for politics himself, Djokovic. So he probably got a bit of a piece of his own medicine. Because why else, if he's not anti-vax, he keeps playing to the crowds all the time. Yeah. With this out. He keeps virtue signaling. Or, and it was so funny, like it, when the, the hearing was on last night, there was, um, you just go back to the, him in the nightclub him and all the other tennis players with their tops off dancing in the COVID nightclub when that that tournament he organised at the start of when he was basically they were basically implying that COVID wasn't serious and they had that tennis tournament where everybody got sick so that kept popping up on social media which I thought was funny um, it's totally uh, even he said it himself in his statement it's gone past tennis it's overshadowed the Australian Open it's made a mockery of a lot of of how they do their business down there. Yeah. And I don't think anyone comes out. I hope people will see through you, man, Morrison. Oh, uh, I really hope so. I found the politicking just so blunt and so obviously contrived. It was pathetic, you know. I mean, some of these clearly poll-tested lines like, rich people can't expect to break the rules. I mean, like some of the stuff was just so transparent. And that gave me a certain sympathy for Djokovic. But then, like, Eamon Sweeney does address... Still, so, like, so, some weird stuff's gone in here, you know? So, like, Sweeney goes to town on him. Well, there are two things we know about Djokovic. One is that he's a great tennis player. The other is that he's a fool. So that's his opening line. So you kind of, <laughs> you know, you have a sense where this is going. And if you're Novak Djokovic, stop reading now. But he does make some, uh, I think, interesting points. Uh, believing everything is above board about Djokovic's participation. And this is where I kind of lose a bit of sympathy for Djokovic and the scapegoat that he so clearly was because there was guilt on both sides. Believing everything is above board about Djokovic's participation requires us to accept that the reigning Australian Open champion was apparently prepared to miss the event until December 16th when he caught the dose of COVID, which enabled him to get the exemption. We also need to ignore the revelation in Der Spiegel that the code for the player's purported COVID test scanned as negative before changing to positive shortly after they'd inspected it and their discovery of a timestamp anomaly which suggested the test was carried out 10 days later than stated. There's also the fact that after apparently testing positive, Djokovic attended that public ceremony that you mentioned, Gav, and the Lakeith magazine, no mask for either. And then there's the line on the form. Weirdly, in the, you know, there's Chekhov's gun here and you feel like everything is suspicious. I actually do think the travel to Spain thing was just a mistake because why wouldn't you just say, yeah, no, we travel to Spain? You know, I think that one is just this weird extra layer of complication that added to the 
cloud over the whole thing. But the the business around the COVID test and the different dates and the Der Spiegel story and the fact that, you know, he seems to have Serbia at his beck and call, Novak Djokovic. What went on there in December? I don't know. I don't know. And look, once Sarah, it became apparent he lied. I think the sports minister was, or sorry, the immigration minister, Alex Hawke, who's a charming fella all in his own right, if you want to look into his politics. But I think it was obvious that he was going to take this open goal and let the Australian people know that nobody's above the rules. Chest out. Well, just to fa- yeah, it was sorry for interrupting, sir. But the uh, his legal team argued strenuously that he's not an anti-vaxer, um, which I thought was quite a funny uh, forty-five minutes of talking. Well, ninety-seven of the top one hundred tennis players in the world are uh, COVID vaxxed. Like, I couldn't yeah. believe it. that's a great rate, isn't it? Mm, yeah, and he, <laughs> I, I wouldn't want to be in that uh, small uh, minority. Uh, to be honest, because look, I, I think Djokovic went into this with his eyes wide open mm. and uh, I genuinely have no sympathy for him. Uh, I, I can't. Politicking, politicking aside, yeah. I, I just think, I just think with everything that everyone has lost over the last two years and, and the immense and, and freedom that everyone has lost, that story was almost comedic. You know, you're the world number one, you want to play in a flimsy ten- tennis tournament in Australia. No one cares, you know, mm. and and that's that's where I sit with it, on the grander scheme of things. Maybe after this week, I, I'm just a little uh, more raw about the things that matter less. But that's where I feel today, you know. And even though I was up this morning at six watching the ruling on, with your sweatband <laughs> on and your rocket and your Djokovic t-shirt, was it? Yeah, it was, it was great fun. I've enjoyed every, every I've enjoyed every article I've read. Ah, oh, such a circus, such a circus. It was amazing how it all felt so important for a few days and then in light of this week it just became like dropped off the news agenda here totally, didn't it? Uh, We don't have time, by the way, to discuss this. I think it would be such an interesting chat. Let's come back to it. But in short, Sarah, Mick Foley, your GAA lover, was going through like RTE's most watched shows and I suppose the most watched TV events of 2021 and it's all sport. And he even, Mick is a a gog, first of all, by the way, that like Home and Away is getting 5 million downloads on the RTE player, despite appearing twice a day on RTE 1 and RTE 2. And uh, this is a population that has spent the last couple of years in lockdown at home. Uh, He says, what fresh madness is this? So Home and Away is still going strong in the RTE player, which is good. But My dad watches it every day. (laughs) At half past one. Oh, dear. And does he get neighbours before or is he shown some restraint? No, no. No, What's solid Are any of the old characters still there in the ladder <laughs> from, the, from the 90s? He's a solid fan of Home and Away, doesn't deviate, won't go near neighbours. Right. No, wouldn't waste his time, but solid Home and Away fan. Good man. Well, Mick just makes the point that the club championship in audience figures really hasn't captured the imagination club action. Like he says, you know, the word from RTE is basically if you put if you put me and Gav Komsky out there playing, you'd still get, you'd still get 100,000 views, you know. So that's kind of like your baseline and it's not going massively above that. Maybe they'll peak at 200,000 over the next while, but it's nothing to write home about. And I think he makes a very good point about the club and see, I'm torn in this because you, you want to look after the 90% of participants, but in terms of like the popularity of the game, he just says, and it's, I think it's a really shrewd observation, Sarah, that the club championship, unlike county, where like even if you're a neutral watching, there's kind of stable storylines going on. He says the club championship have none of that has none of that stability. The diversity, the randomness of winners, the contenders from year to year, is any club competition's greatest strength as a concept, but it's also its greatest weakness as a viable television product. That you just get these random teams and unknown players each year, and you can't really build a story. And he says the intercounty 
scene offers familiar names, characters. It's like a long-running soap opera, like Home and Away, if you will. Uh, each club championship is a standalone mini-series with little links from one season to the next. Again, works fine for everybody for the time being, for RTE, not a massive spend, public broadcasting service. Uh, the only serious possibility, he says, though, for the club game outgrowing itself might be a, f- a few su- super clubs emerge and they play each other routinely and we get that sort of storyline. So he says... His argument is that because of that, they were never built for the big time, the club championship. Uh, this winter, they found their niche. The games will never hold a huge audience, is his argument. Would you would you agree or disagree with that? Is there more scope, do you think, for the club championship to capture the imagination or do you see where Mick's coming from? I'm really trying. Uh, I've been to Parnell Park at least five times in the last you know six weeks to engage with the club championships that have been ongoing. Now, I do live five minutes from Parnell Park, so it's not a great ask, but charging me 18 euro to see two club teams go at each other in a very, I suppose, banal fashion mm. means that even I'm struggling when Kilmacud are on the TV to engage with it. And it's because uh, it's just not shiny enough for me. Um, I'm going to Old Trafford next Saturday because I'm missing the the fireworks of Croke Park and I need some spectacular sport. Yeah. And that's my issue, I suppose, with Go to the, the wrong club. place. I know. Well, <laughs> West Ham could end up in the Champions League. But you um, get you get razzmatazz, you get that sense of event, you get a bit of polish, you get all of yeah. that stuff. Yeah. 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 And look, if we if we narrow if if we put the GA intercounty season into such a narrow window uh, as is proposed and you know it's all going to be done and dusted by July, August mm. then mm. the Premiership is going to be more and more attractive to people I'm actually going to uh, Watford and Brighton in February just as an aside but that's all because there isn't really anything happening in the inter-county scene until March or April and and I suppose that's where I am yeah. you know I, I want I to be entertained Yeah um, we're so out of time I think we should have that conversation again because I, I, I tend to agree with you actually and anecdotally it's what I sense out there as well but we are way out of time. Uh, thank you both. That was a paper discussion for the first half, unlike many others. So I appreciate you having those difficult conversations. Uh, Sarah Donovan, All-Ireland winner, and Gavin Kumsky, the Irish Times. Thanks to you both. Enjoy the day. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball.